energy and air pollution will be one of the top five issues for the general election. We talk about Putin being in control. He's not really. It's the various factions under him and it suits them to have him at the front. You're trying to save for a house deposit and you'd have to save up some crazy amount of money. How on earth are you going to do that if a pint is £7? There are certain key things that we want from India and there are certain key things that they want from us. You're listening to Bloomberg UK Politics. I'm Ewan Potts. And I'm Stephen Carroll. Welcome to the programme. Ewan, are you one of those people who believes in the truth of kind of maxims that we use, like, you know, bad news always comes in threes, etc.? Always. Uh, but how many things do good news come in then? Um, is it threes as well? I mean, it's an arguable case, right? There's been we're, we're talking about this because there have been two potentially good pieces of news for the government that we've had today. One is that the UK has agreed to a deal to rejoin the European Union's Horizon Research Programme, so the 95.5 billion euro programme. Very good news for UK scientists, something they've been long lobbying for, because of course they were left the programme as part of Brexit. It's also a sign of those warming relations with the EU that we've been told so much about over the past few months as well. Then we also had uh, on the economic front some good news to do with inflation. A survey done by the Bank of England of UK companies saying they're expecting to raise their prices at the slowest pace in almost two years, which is what counts for good news when you're thinking about inflation. It's slowing down, not going into reverse, just slowing down. But of course, if that's your biggest priority as the Prime Minister, it's not a bad idea. So we've got two pieces of good news. Yes, it's something which is probably going to completely ruin your uh, narrative. Uh, There's a house price slump, we know, which is worsening in Britain. Data from Halifax and the Nationwide Today Halifax said that house prices fell by almost 2% in August alone, so a steepening of the slump. But of course, it depends who you are, because for a lot of people, house prices falling is a good news story. Uh, true. I mean, th- this has also made me think about a steepening slide. It'd be a good news if you were going down it and enjoying yourself. Um, yeah, I mean, this is this is one of the classic good news, bad news things, is that it's good news if you're trying to buy a house, but it's bad news if you're trying to sell one uh, or trying to practice remortgage and you realise the value of your house has gone down dramatically. Um, so I think the jury's out on whether which side of the fence that sits on. Um, but th- I suppose the question we're asking today is, will these pieces of good news that we've had help to right the ship of government after a bit of a stormy start to the parliamentary term? and a very turbulent set of puns that we'll just skip right by. Our political editor, Kitty Donaldson, is with us for more in studio. Kitty, the government had been under huge pressure from scientists over Horizon. Uh, this a Bloomberg scoop that we got yesterday that the deal was going to come. We had confirmation of it from the government this morning. Is it a good deal for the UK government? I think so. Uh, this means scientists can now access a, a European-wide pot of money. And there are other countries involved from as you know, far away as... Uh, Israel as well, so so it's definitely good news for scientists. Some of them, I've been my inbox has been full this morning of, of scientists welcoming it, but also saying why did it take so long? Come on, it's been two years now, over two years. But I think I think uh, I think people in Downing Street are pretty happy with this actually because it's the sort of other piece of the jigsaw that was uh, that the Windsor framework solved the the um, trade agreements with Northern Ireland and 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 because of that's that was settled that meant that they can sort this bit of the jigsaw out as well and it shows it shows that Sunak can get things done and that he he's good at statecraft so yeah they're pleased D- does an inbox full of happy scientists make a difference from an inbox full of angry Tory MPs by any chance <laughs> they tend to text me <laughs> different inbox yeah exactly what why did the whole thing take so long because it, it, it did drag on didn't it it, di- it did, um, and it was all to do with Northern Ireland. Michelle Donnellan said that this morning. Um, the science secretary said 
it was only after the Windsor framework was agreed that she was able to go back to Brussels and start uh, negotiations again on this. This is something that, you know, the interesting in the announcement I picked out the, the from 10 Downing Street saying that one of the good things about this is the UK wouldn't have to pay for the two years that it wasn't actually part of the agreement. Is that the bar now that we're setting for good news for things is that the consequence of, you know, the not being in it, which has been so bad for scientists as they've been telling us, is that they've saved a bit of money as well. So cynical and one so young. <laughs> <laughs> Look, you've got to present... If you're if you're Rishi Sunak, you've got to present this as a win, right? Because it's got to be an offset, and also you've got to keep people in your party happy who are worried that you know this this might be a slippery slope towards some sort of you know exaggerated re-engagement with the European Union. And I I, th- I think he's trod that line quite quite carefully. I mean, he, you know, he's got a thousand other problems, but I don't think Horizons one anymore. Talking about keeping. Tory MPs happy. I, I know this is a bit of a basic question, but you're very connected to Tory MPs and MPs across the, the House. What what has the mood been like o- over the summer? There's been quite a lot of, of, of rocky going on, goings on, hasn't there? But is, is there any optimism amongst Tory MPs? They kind of vary depending on the week and what's happened. Everyone's sort of up and down. Um, everyone's back this week, you know, quite zen after their summer, showing off their tans. Um <laughs> I don't think that will last. I mean, we're going... What tends to happen is people are quite happy for the first couple of weeks and then we go into conference season. And there's something sort of snaps. There's the weather changes and people start getting colds and the the sort of backbiting starts. And so I sort of see this as a kind of phony war before the kind of proper political season kicks off again. OK, well, where, where do you think the, the first one of those salvos will come from in, in terms of the... I mean, we're still thinking about the five priorities as that deadline ticks down for right. the top one and on an inflation being halved by the end of the year. What, yeah. What's the biggest worry, do you think, for uh, Rishi Sunak when it comes to that backbiting? Well, I guess it depends how well they do in these by-elections, actually. Um, so... We found out this morning that, well, we knew Chris Pincher was going to step down um, and he's actually done it this morning. And we expect the by-election in Tamworth in in the Midlands to be held on the October the 19th, uh, which is the same day as the Mid-Bedfordshire by-election that was caused by Nadine Dorries quitting. Um, that's not confirmed yet, but um, the Speaker has held open the writ so that um, it can be moved next week and the two by-elections can take place on the same day. And that's going to be a bit of a shocker for the Tories, isn't it? Depending on what happens. What, what's quite interesting about Mid Bedfordshire is that the Lib Dems and the, the a Labour Party haven't come to any sort of agreement about who should step aside to let the other side have a proper crack at it. And therefore they might split the vote, which means that the Tory, Tories could sort of slip through the middle. Tamworth I'm less sure about, but these sort of by-elections tend to bring things to the fore. And I was just watching Parliament before I came in here and, you know, the the Labour opposition having a lovely time saying, look, you know, Tory party's crumbling like a school roof, basically. Everything's going wrong for you. Talk us through the challenges which Rishi Sunak faces over the coming months. OK, so we're coming to the end of a parliamentary session. Um, we've got the King's speech in, in November, November the 7th. And there's about 16 bills outstanding at the moment. And so that sort of doesn't give the Tories very much time to pass much legislation. There have been accusations that this is a zombie government sort of heading towards the abyss. Um, but So what we will see, I think, in the in the King's speech is, is signalling. So you'll see kind of law and order stuff from the Tories. And this is the basis on which the election is going to be fought. And actually, I, th- I thought it was quite noticeable this week. Um, the Labour 
Labour reshuffle when they then they did the pictures for for them all marching in for their um for their first shadow cabinet meeting they'd all had some, some sort of makeover I think like I think he was wearing a new suit they looked really sort of smart and summer sales shopping potentially <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> or someone had said actually come on come on guys brush your hair it's time now. Surely not. But I mean, did they did they did they pull that off basically? Because it was it it wasn't much of a reshuffle from the the Labour front bench. I was sort of dubbing it a re-sniffle. Um, but is ha, have has Keir Starmer succeeded in presenting a front bench that looks like they're ready for what's coming in the next year? I think so. And actually, what's quite interesting, having covered politics in the Blair years, is how many of these people were kind of special advisors and aides to people who were in cabinet in the Blair years, you know, people like Liz Kendall um, and uh, Peter Kyle, who's now the shadow science um, secretary. He, he worked for um, Hilary Armstrong back in the day. And, and so it's kind of interesting seeing these sort of, you know, people suited and booted and now grown ups and, and sort of waiting, ready to, uh, to, take, to take power, which we expect to happen. We spoke to Labour's um, Shadow Business and Trade Secretary, Jonathan Reynolds, yesterday, and he said that uh, the risk premium for UK business is now continuing a Conservative government. Do you think Labour is succeeding in, 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 in wooing business at these prawn cocktail offensive 2.0 or whatever they, whatever they call it now? <laughs> um, I think they're doing a very good job of saying they're wooing business. It's actually an interesting question, and I was going to look at it more for a, for a story because... Sneak I think people might be hedging their bets slightly and we will be able to tell during the conference season. So they, these conferences, I'm sure you've been to them, they have kind of enormous halls of um, exhibitors and people pay an absolute fortune to go and stand there and they get a photo with the Prime Minister, you know, a sort of cheesy photo. And during kind of the heyday of, of Blairism, you literally couldn't move for these people just sort of elbowing each other, jostling for space, wanting to be next to, you know, the Prime Minister. And it'd be quite interesting when we go to the Tory and Labour conferences to see it's it's quite a sort of good visual marker of whether whether actually businesses are coming in and, and, and supporting Labour. Um suspect actually some people think that Labour might not win an outright majority and therefore it's not like they're kind of burning off their Tory can- contacts just yet. Yeah, well, it would actually be quite a good kind of metric, wouldn't it, wouldn't it, to judge how importantly business are, are taking a party by the amount of money that they spend booking these the, these things at conference. I remember the, the difference between the Lib, Lib Dem conference before the coalition and Lib Dem conference after the coalition yes. was absolutely explosive. You yeah. know, nobody wanted to go to the Lib Dem conference before. And then suddenly they're in government I know. and they're awash with cash from all these uh, I know. exhibitors. I know, I know. It's, it's extraordinary, isn't it? Because you can't imagine sort of being a teenage Lib Dem and thinking one day, oh, you know, I'll be in power <laughs> and... Uh, and, then, and, and yet, and yet, and yet yes, yeah. yeah, exactly. Look at Nick Clegg. Yeah. Well, let's let's think about the party conference season. Then, I mean, what what's the kind of key thing that both leaders have got to prove? I say both leaders. I'm talking about the Conservatives and Labour, not yeah. to dismiss the Lib Dems. Well, conference is kind of an interesting point because, for instance, if you're Labour, actually for both of them, but if Keir Starmer will be talking to his party, so you're kind of running a dual operation. You're talking to your party and you're saying. Look how left wing we are on one hand. You know, we've got doing all this stuff for workers' rights. We are um, 
you know, um, on your side, etc., etc. But at the same time, you're talking above the heads of that crowd to the TV audience at home. And and I know um, Kieran and his team think this is this point is absolutely pivotal, and that's partly because they get back to back media coverage of the week. There's a sort of we'll be there. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> There's a kind of gentleman's agreement that that neither side announces any policy during the other one's conference. We'll see whether that holds, I don't know. And then for, for Sunak, Sunak, someone told me the other day that you're going to see a lot of Rishi at conference. And I think it's because he polls much better than the party. He's much more popular than the Tories are. And, you know, the Tories have been fighting like rats in a sack for, well, for 13 years. But he, he is kind of the best chance they've got and they realise that. But what's quite interesting as well is that you've got people being members of the cabinet setting themselves up for life after Rishi. And so we saw that when Suella Braverman made that speech earlier in the summer, which she sort of strayed massively off brief. And actually a little bit from Gillian Keegan, the Education Secretary this week, I don't think that she's at all displeased with how things Mm. have gone down, although I'm not sure her strategy has been totally effective. Do you think Boris Johnson's going to be at a conference? I don't know. He 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 always does this thing where he, you know, he turns up and the sort of place goes mad, and that kind of position was taken by Jacob Rees-Mogg. He's sort of, you know, the kind of adolescence favourite. I remember a few years ago finding a lad who can only have been about nineteen, and he had a Jacob Rees-Mogg tattoo on his chest, which he proudly showed me. I know, was, I'm <laughs> looking at Stephen's face. Stephen's pulling a face. Uh, absolutely um, crazy. But you find these kind of fanboys and fangirls there. So don't don't get tattoos of politicians on yourself, kids. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> health warning. Yeah, health warning. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. they're, they're only for now. Do you go back and see us uh, after party conference and some more reports of uh, tattoos? That would be excellent. That's our political editor, Kitty Donaldson. Thanks for joining us on Bloomberg UK Politics. Meanwhile, the Institute for Government says the stars are aligning for an autumn of distracted government. Joining us now to discuss is the Institute's director, Hannah White. Hannah, great to have you with us. What are the distractions then the government are facing? Well, plenty of things that Rishi Sunak would really rather not have to be dealing with, I think is a summary. First down the track, uh, he's got three by-elections now with today's resignation of Chris Pincher, having failed to successfully challenge uh, the finding against him uh, by the uh, parliamentary uh, system. So he's resigned as an MP. There'll be a by-election. Uh, and then there are the by-elections for Nadine Dorries and uh, the one in uh, Rutherglen in Scotland um, after the SNP MP there, Margaret Ferrier, had to uh, stepped down. Uh, well, had a had a um, recall petition against her because of her travelling when she had COVID. So three by elections, which are going to mean um, MPs, backbenchers, uh, and ministers having to spend time out of Westminster, worrying about the electoral consequences in the longer term of whatever happens in those. Then I think a big distraction over the autumn is going to be the return of the COVID inquiry on two fronts. Firstly, we're going to have at some point, uh, possibly before Christmas, the report of the first phase of the inquiry, which was looking at preparedness for the pandemic. That's going to have plenty of um, tough conclusions, I'm sure, for for government uh, to to have to, to deal with and manage from a sort of media point of view. But we're also moving into the second phase of the COVID inquiry, which is about decision making during the pandemic. 
And that's going to see plenty of current and recently former government ministers uh, giving evidence, possibly if the inquiry chooses to um, refer to written material, WhatsApps, diaries, anything like that, those will be published. And so, for again, for individuals, but also for government as a whole, there'll be a lot of time needing to be taken to think about the inquiry, to be think about uh, to be thinking about this, managing the uh, media consequences of what gets said. And that's likely, I think, to sort of rip off all sorts of scabs, which um, had just started to form over disagreements within the Conservative Party about how the pandemic was handled. Um, so those are just two of the of the uh, distractions, I think, which will mean that it's it's tough. I mean, it's not unusual for government to have to be dealing with by-elections, inquiries, that sort of thing. But in the year in uh, the run-up to the next election, uh, it's uh, particularly unwelcome, I think, for Rishi Sunak. Yeah, it's a pretty unwelcome challenge for the government. Now, when we spoke to you at the beginning of the year, you said the government's challenge was to reconcile the manifesto from 2019, as well as Sunak's leadership pledges, and then kind of package that together and sell it to the electorate. Just give us a report card. Where are we sort of two thirds of the way through the year? How how are they doing on that? Well, I think we thought that um, at the start of the year, Rishi Sunak's five pledges uh, that he was uh, trying to say that he, he would achieve this year were relatively unambitious. Um, I think as it's turned out, they've been they've been harder than they looked. Um, some of them were already things which there weren't really that many sort of levers that Rishi Sunak could could pull um, in terms of sort of reducing inflation, which is proven a bit stickier than he would have liked, although he's had some more welcome uh, economic news more recently. Um, but uh, so there's that is sort of, you know, he might he might hit that target by the end of the year if, if he's lucky. Small boats has proven um, predictably, I would say, intractable. I mean, he only really promised to uh, pass legislation on that front. But of course, everyone's translated that into a promise to to reduce uh, small boat landings. Um, they have reduced a bit. Um, but I don't think uh, people in the Conservative Party are yet convinced there's been the step change that they would really like to be seeing there. And the government's still battling over its Rwanda policy. Um, then we've got the, the pledges around uh, the NHS. Obviously, um, uh, that's uh, that's still proving very uh, tricky. Uh, and there's, um, uh, of course, the RAC crisis has intervened primarily focused, uh, this is the, the the aerated concrete, which we've has been um, uh, revealed publicly, although it's obviously mm. a long known as a problem privately, um, to be primarily a problem so far in schools. But I think there is concern that for the NHS more broadly and other public buildings, it could also be a factor. So there's plenty of stuff where um, uh, the, those pledges have been sort of harder uh, for Rishi Sunak to to meet than he might have hoped. He has been progressing other pieces of legislation, things like the online safety bill is now hopefully getting into its final stages. That all needs those bits of final bits of legislation he's been pushing through need to be done and dusted uh, in time for the King's speech, which we're going to see later in the autumn. And that really, that King's speech is going to be the government's agenda for its final year of uh, government, we anticipate uh, they might go as early as May, but I, my sort of assumption is we'll be looking at a, a late autumn election next year, and so they, in the King's speech in November, will be wanting to set out 
a nice little programme of bits of legislation which gives them a chance to talk about some of the things which they think are going to be priorities for the election over the next year, uh, for the electorate over the next year. Given that timetable, we're talking then in and around a year left of this government by your estimation. How much time does that really give an administration in the, the, the last days before an election to actually achieve anything? And, and will the government have to make decisions about picking quite straightforward and simple issues to be able to progress policy, given the electoral challenges they'll be facing? Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I think that the the bad news for everyone as citizens of the UK is that some of the big intractable problems which we know um, face the country in you know, public services, the NHS in particular, growth, productivity, all these things, they're unlikely, you know, most of them require some degree of consensus building, cross-party um, working um, and really putting in place long-term programs to solve i don't see any of that happening over the next year there's no incentive for politicians on either side to to cooperate with each other and what both parties i think will be you know tempted to do is to focus more on uh sort of sexy sounding often re-announcements of things that they've said they'll do in the past um but things which won't make uh much difference um won't amount to a hill of beans, we might say, in terms of those big long-term problems over the next year. We've got another wasted year, if you if you like, because the focus of politicians is going to be on what's going to hopefully win them the next election rather than solving those long-term problems, which are difficult. And, you know, we would have solved them by now if it was something you could just um, announce and quickly pass a piece of legislation and solve in a year. Do you think an earlier election will be good for the UK? Well, from that point of view, um, you know, if it delivered a government with a, a significant enough majority for them to be thinking in terms of, you know, a, a solid five year term um, and a, uh, you know, so that they could plan over a five year period for whatever it was that they wanted to do in terms of delivering their manifesto. Um, and obviously, whether that was a Conservative or a Labour government, then I think that would be beneficial for the UK. That's what we haven't seen in recent years. We've had lots of uh, elections sooner than we would have um, normally expected in the cycle. We've seen a lot of political disruption. And so I think if we if, if that's what an election delivers, that would be, you know, it would be good to get on and have that as soon as possible. The risk is uh, that that's not what the next election delivers, uh, that it instead results in, you know, a narrow majority, a hung parliament of some sort. That's not what the polls are indicating. The polls have Labour ahead, but, you know, a lot can happen in a few months um and then we could be back to you know another election more rapidly um and the government feeling it didn't really have the electoral mandate and, and capital and number of uh, amount of support in parliament to get a, a big ambitious program of of, of reform and, and long-term change through so i think the government the calculation for the government is you know when the electorate is going to be feeling most positive. Um, lots of people arguing that the later they leave it, the more time there is for the economy, for the economic figures to look better. Um, but then of trading off uh, against the fact that there are obviously local elections and mayoral elections in May, and if they do badly in those, uh, that might set a bad context for an election later in the year. Um, so they could be tempted to combine the two in May. 
And another problem for both parties is money. Basically, there isn't any. Um, you've talked about the risk of government trying to deliver jam for voters ahead of the election, haven't you? Yeah, so this is another risk, I think, um, that actually what's there's a lot of pressure from the backbenches of the Conservative Party for tax cuts ahead of the election. The economic situation is clearly very difficult and with inflation as high as it is, uh, budgets that have been, which looks in some cases relatively generous at public services, have just been eaten away uh, by that inflation. Um, and so the, I think there will be, unfortunately, a temptation for, for government to to salami slice away uh, further at, at, at public sector um, uh, budgets that they had been thinking that they, they would give, but worse to kind of maybe... Um, make some rash decisions in terms of cutting uh, big picture projects um, in order to give themselves the the leeway in order to to make tax cuts. I think there's, you know, a search on for, for ways to find um, some chunks of money which would al- enable Jeremy Hunt to deliver tax cuts. And that might lead to short term decisions which would deliver those chunks of money but might not be right for the country in the long term. Let's think beyond this election waiting room that we're in then and to who might be in government next. The polls strongly indicating that big lead for Labour. There's recently been a reshuffle of the Labour front bench. Does this, in your eyes, starting to look like a government in waiting? I certainly think my sense from from sort of Labour, the Labour front bench now, is is the, the sort of sense of relief that this reshuffle has been done and that they now feel this is the the uh, team that they're going to be taking into the election, whether that's in May or later next year. Um, and I think that is uh, important from Labour's point of view. The Institute for Government wrote a uh, paper earlier in the year calling on Labour to get on and have its reshuffle as soon as possible, because the evidence is the longer you shadow a brief, before you get into government and if Labour is successful, the longer you stay thereafter, the indication being you're more successful, the longer you have to prepare. Um, so I think it's it's positive for Labour. Hopefully this is the last reshuffle that Keir Starmer has in mind and they can now spend however much time they do have remaining really pulling together what it is they want to deliver and and, and, and argue to the electorate that they, they as, a, as a government, could do. Uh, we know that um, that 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 is the um, that that is the task for them now, um, and I think they are thinking seriously about what it would mean to be in government um, and what the transition would look like from being in opposition, where you have to operate quite differently um, to, to to moving into being in government roles, which is obviously something Labour hasn't uh, done for thirteen fourteen years now, and that would be a big change for them. At the Institute for Government, your mission is to improve government for the benefit of society what have you seen much from labor in, in terms of their program as to how they want to reform the civil service and some of the mechanics of government or are we yet to see that kind of detail i think we haven't seen anything in detail uh, we've seen plenty of criticism of the government by labor uh, of the way in which uh, the conservative party has handled its relationship with the civil service um We've seen relatively um, slow progress in some aspects of of the reform, civil service reform uh, program that the government set up for itself. But I think you know you can 
you can read from what Labour said that they don't think the government's necessarily um, uh, done a great job. I don't think we have a clear idea yet of what it is they think they would do differently on that front. To go back to the point you made before, there isn't going to be a lot of money around. Um, so uh, thinking about um, reform, improving processes and so on is going to have to be an important tool uh, to, to to try to get a change uh, in, in, in outcomes for, for the country um, because they, they won't be able to throw money at it the way that uh, Labour was able to do in, in 1997. And I note that you're speaking to Liz Truss at an IFG event in a couple of weeks. What are you most looking forward to hearing from her? Well, it's going to be interesting. It's a year on from her mini budget. Um, I think she's keen to to reflect on on uh, why things, uh, well, h- how uh, she failed to communicate her her vision of the economy to the to the country. And I think she's going to have another go at it. Um, so uh, that'll be very interesting to hear. I'm interested to hear from her um, her reflections on on how she made use of the government machine. Um, and how um, how that could have, have worked differently for her, because clearly she had a quite a challenging approach to some of the orthodoxies of the way the civil service um, and, and economics work. Um, and it'll be interesting to hear uh, what she's how she's reflected on that since. So that's an event that anyone can uh, dial into online. So do go to our website and sign up for that if you're interested. Well, I'm just wondering, are there lessons that we have learned from Liz Truss's, albeit brief, time in government? I think it's interesting because, um, you know, I think at the time the Institute was highlighting um, things like uh, her sort of uh, uh, approach to the institutions of government through the OBR, uh, her um, approach to sort of uh, uh, policy making and to scrutiny that she didn't leave very much time um, for, for Parliament to look at her economic plans. Um, of course, she was her her early Premiership. The, the first weeks were very much disrupted by the by the death of the Queen and so on. But she t- very much took an attitude that she wanted to press things through extremely quickly. I think it's easy to kind of um, dismiss the whole of her premiership and just say she just went about everything um, in an inappropriate way and it all fell apart. I think it's important actually to think about it um, in in a more granular way. And to think, we you know, actually, to what extent was it to do with um, speed or the extent of her policy programme or really the, the the disruptive way she tried to go about it? And, you know, I think there are lessons that we should learn. And it's and it's too easy to just sort of dismiss it as as overall having been a, a, an aberrant um, episode in our in our governance. Hannah, really interesting to get your take on Liz Truss's premiership one year on almost to the day. That's Hannah White, Director of the Institute for Government. Thanks for joining us on Bloomberg UK Politics. And you can read Hannah's great blog post on Sunak's awesome challenges on the Institute for Government's website. That's it from us for today. If you like the programme, don't forget to subscribe and give it five stars so other people can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you listen. This episode was produced by James Walcock and our audio engineer was Marifal Hussain. I'm Ewan Potts. And I'm Stephen Carroll. We'll be back with more tomorrow. This is Bloomberg. Bloomberg UK Politics. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. 
With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more.